Amen. Good morning. All right, so we're beginning chapter 4 of Ruth. And so just to catch you up, to get you up to speed, uh, we were in chapter 3 last week. And uh, we covered all of chapter 3 because it's a complete unit. Uh, chapter 3, just high cliff notes, Naomi has a plan. Um, Naomi is a mother-in-law who wants the best for her, her, her daughter-in-law. And she notices that Boaz, the hardworking man, the owner of the field that Ruth is laboring in, he is working late into the night, um, and all his workers have gone home. He's finished a long day, he had something to eat, he had something to drink, and he relaxes, and he goes to sleep. So Naomi has this idea, Ruth, you should go, and you should uh, lay down next to his feet, you should uncover his, his feet, and um, make a petition to him uh, to care for you and to provide for you. So Ruth does, she does all that her mother-in-law asks, and by the end of it, he says, I will do what you ask, and um, I will handle this as a redeemer. We've talked about in that culture, uh, women usually could not own, own property, um, couldn't just go out and just start a, uh, a, a business or a find a husband. A, a man would have to take care of her and uh, provide for her. And so you would need a man. There's an obligation, there's a duty from a man within the family as a kinsman redeemer to care for one of his relatives uh, widows and there was great concern for, for the Lord for widows and for people in that culture for, for widows and so um, Boaz takes this this duty seriously and we end in on verse 18 where it says uh, she replied this is Naomi to Ruth wait my daughter until you learn how this matter turns out for the man will not rest but will saddle, settle the matter today the very next morning Ruth goes back home he goes into the city. So uh, chapter 3 is a um, beautiful picture of godly manhood and womanhood. And, um, but there does have to be a disclaimer for young men and women. This is not a dating strategy. If you've ever heard this in, in, in a sermon that this is something you should do, do not do it. Uh, the elders do not recommend it. Uh, this is descriptive. It describes something. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you what you should do. Uh, this worked then, and it only worked for Ruth. This is a one-time occurrence, just so you know, ladies, don't get any ideas. Um, all right, so now we're kind of making a bit of a transition in the book. Chapter 4, Ruth is always in view, but all the actions are taken by Boaz. At this point, the Redeemer will take it from here. The Redeemer takes charge. Boaz sets the tone for the rest of the book. And so in that, men, we have a lot to learn from Boaz. We have a lot to learn from a, a, a godly man who is well-rounded. We've seen so far in the book that he's successful, he's worthy, he's, he's highly regarded publicly. We also know of his, of his character. Privately, he is hardworking when no one's watching. He shows concern for the workers in his field. He, he, he cares for the uh, widow. And now we're going to see an addition here. There, we're going to see that this other element of him that really resonates with me. He is, a, he is a shrewd negotiator. He knows how to navigate the cultural and uh, social and even legal channels um, 
of his, his culture. And the other thing, too, is that there's a lot we can admire about him, but most importantly, we admire him because he points us to our Redeemer. So throughout this, this uh, text, we're going to say, man, Boaz is wise here. Look what Boaz did here. But I want you to be thinking, how much more great is our Redeemer? How much more wise and loving and caring is our Redeemer? Boaz cares for the widow because our Redeemer, our God, cares for the widow, the sojourner, the orphan, the poor, and the broken, and the destitute. So for all of us, this gives us something to, gives us many things to think about. And it should be a hopeful book as, a, as well as a, a hopeful passage. And I also want you to want you to keep in mind, we're kind of thinking about this in several layers this morning. So at the same time that Boaz goes down to the gate, Ruth is sitting home. Remember verse 18 of chapter 3. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. While all this is going on, Ruth is sitting home, and you can just put yourself in her mind. Will he really do what, what, what he promised? Will he, will he really carry this through? Will he really provide? Is this indeed the answer to my prayers? Imagine the anxiety and the anticipation. And think, how many times have we been in that same position with the Lord? How many times has the Lord reminded us that we are to be still and know that he is God? Sit and wait and trust him patiently. We don't know what's happening at the city gate. But we must trust that our Redeemer, who neither sleeps nor slumbers, will not rest. Our Redeemer will bring forth our cause. Our Redeemer hears our plea. Our Redeemer knows what we need. And so in, in, in that way, um, Ruth, is not, Ruth does not speak at all here. She's only mentioned when it comes to the transaction. But don't forget where she is. She's home wondering what's happening at this point. All right. So our sermon this morning uh, is going to have two points, and basically it'll be a sermon of two halves. So the uh, first half is the uh, cultural context. Um, this is one of the, the few places um, in ancient documents where we actually get a description of um, a transaction in the ancient Near Eastern world. So the first point will be the uh, preparation uh, for the hearing of this matter and then the uh, proceedings. And then the second half will be the uh, redemptive context of all this the payment and the proclamation. And so this is a bit of a microcosm of how we, we study the scripture. So the first thing in studying the scripture is what did this mean to the people who received this in the first place? What did all this mean to the, those who read Ruth for the, for the first time? Then we're going to see how it points to Christ, as all scripture should, and then we're going to see how it helps and encourages us, what it means for us. So what it means to the original audience, how it points to Christ, and then what it means for us. So let's pick up uh, Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, 
who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it. In the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one who drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from among the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you bless the preaching of your word this morning, that as you spoke through your holy prophets and apostles to inspire the scriptures, that you would speak through your servant this morning, that your word that is living and active would not come back void, that your spirit who indwells the hearts of your people, who convicts the heart of the lost and the rebel would remind us of your word, would remind us of the person and work of Christ, would comfort us in our affliction, give us hope in our discouragement, give us peace in the difficulties of the world. We praise you that every week we get to come together and open your word. See that you are a God who loves, who saves, who redeems a people who are far off. We're reminded, particularly at this time of year, we're not just a distant God. But the word that became flesh, it walked among us. The word that is the fulfillment of everything we will read this morning and everything we will ever read in your word came to fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He would suffer and die and rise again. His people would have life everlasting in Him. And it is by faith that we have this life. Lord, we praise you for this new life. We ask this morning that the believer would be encouraged and that anyone in the sound of my voice who does not have faith in the true redeemer, 
Spirit would work in their heart, that they would turn, they would repent of their sins, trust in Christ, so that we may rejoice when the angels of heaven, sinner, repents and lives in Christ. In his name we pray. All right, so the very first words of chapter 4, these are, these are transitionary words. Now Boaz, in the Hebrew, Boaz is right at the beginning of the sentence. Our attention is drawn to him. Now Boaz, this is Boaz's part of the story. He had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. Remember the end of chapter 3, Naomi said he will not rest. He will handle this matter today. This is how much of an honorable man he is. Ruth comes to him in the middle of the night. She sleeps at his feet. They, they wake up before it's bright enough for one person to recognize another. They, they, they go their separate ways. And he goes immediately down to the gate and sits. This man of integrity, it's not the third thing on his to-do list. She asked him to redeem her, and it's the first thing he does. That is a good lesson. You are doing something, you are fulfilling what someone has asked. When you are a man of your word, you don't wait, you don't, you don't delay. I will do it first thing. And so he goes down to the, the gate of the city. And so we don't really understand this. Uh, we don't really have a, a parallel. So if you can figure, uh, if you can picture the town square, the, the, city, uh, the city hall, the uh, courtroom, and social media all in, in, in one place, this is the gate of the city. This is where, when the elders gather, everyone knows something important is going on and everyone else starts to gather too. This is where if a deal has to be made, if a uh, decision has to be made, if there needs to be discipline, if there needs to be recompense, it all happens in the gate of the city. And he went and he sat and he waited. He is a man of integrity. Uh, when we went through Proverbs 31, we, we, we talked about how Ruth is a, a parallel, and some believe the illustration of Proverbs 31. There's a beautiful little poem in the middle of Proverbs 31, and the beautiful middle of that poem is about the husband of the woman. It's Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. On either side of this is a godly woman who sells her wares, who has a, a great reputation, who cares for her family. And at the middle, the heart of the uh, encouragement to this godly woman is the godly man, who also is, is known. Uh, so, again, our passage or our text comes right out of Proverbs 31. So as he's, he's sitting there, another term to draw our attention, behold, watch this. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Remember earlier, we, we, we talked about this. The um, perfect happenstance of Ruth to just land on, she just happens on Boaz's field, of all fields. Boaz goes to the gate early in the morning, and it just so happens, by pure coincidence, the first one to show up is the man of the hour, the Redeemer who is in first place before Boaz. It's almost like there is a divine hand that is moving. It's almost like there is a sovereign God who is moving chess pieces and placing them exactly where they need to be. And so he says to this, this man, 
Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Now, we use the ESV. Uh, the ESV is way too generous here. This word for friend in, in, in the Hebrew, um, it designates a particular person who is undefined. What, what does that mean? Kind of like uh, Mr. So-and-so or whatever your name is. It's the equivalent of Boaz saying, hey, you, come here. His name is, is not mentioned. It's even got a little funny ring to it in Hebrew. In, in, in Hebrew, it is Poloni Almoni. Poloni Almoni, come here. Um, and so it's interesting. Uh, so if this guy was in Star Trek, he'd be wearing a red shirt. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting that in a book, and particularly a chapter, in this chapter there are so many names. And there's a great concern for a name being continued. But one of the main characters at the center of this whole drama does not have a name. Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni, sits down. And uh, this should tell us something. We're going to see in a moment. He is not meant to be remembered. All right, so um, that is the uh, preparation. Everything's set up. And uh, now in in verse 3... Uh, or excuse, verse, verse 2, the elders come, they sit down. And so, beginning in verse 3, now we get to the proceedings. So, Boaz, Mr. So-and-so, and all the elders sit down in the hearing. The, the uh, court is now in session. Here's what Boaz says. All right, here's the matter at hand. He says to the Redeemer, he speaks to this man directly in, in the view of everyone else. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our, rel- our relative, Elimelech. Now, we don't know the whole story here. This is the first we're hearing of, of this land. There's a lot of speculation about this. But maybe, probably, they, when they went to Moab, they leased or sold the land, uh, allowed people to uh, work it, and, um, but in those days, you could, you could sell someone land for a time, so you could come back and uh, re- redeem it. Um, so that's probably what would happen. But what you need, you need to know here is that he is our relative. He is speaking to this man who is first in line to be redeemer, and he's telling him of his family duty. He is reminding him that we now have a widow who, has, who happens to have a piece of property. She needs some help. You're the first one to help. You can be her kisman redeemer. You can be her savior and you can get some property out of it at the same time um and so but what's interesting here as far as we know naomi didn't ask him to do this how does he know that she owned property maybe he's a man about town maybe he knows it there's a lot of speculation here um but here's what we do know we do know he has put naomi and ruth under his wing we do know that he has concern for the widow and we do know that as a redeemer He's not going to leave part of his obligation undone. Not only does Ruth need a husband, but these widows need to make sure that they have income and that they are are cared for. And what else I love about Boaz? He's the sharpest knife in the drawer. So Boaz does not show up without a plan. He shows up with a plan. He turns this problem into an opportunity. He says, okay, she makes a marriage proposal to me. So how can I keep this woman and her mother-in-law who is the widow of my kinsmen and their land all together. They're a package deal for him. He's not a, a, a haphazard redeemer. 
But to the average man, as you're going to see in just a moment, the land is a lot more favorable than the idea of taking on a foreign wife. So, once he lays out what the uh, situation is, he comes to the Redeemer and says, hey man, I want to do you a favor. Verse 4. So, I thought I would tell you of it. Since you're the closest, I thought you should know. Buy it. He doesn't ask him, he tells him. Buy it. In the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders, by now a crowd has formed. This is brilliant negotiating. He puts Poloni Almoni on the spot. All the elders are watching. All the people are watching. Are you a man of honor? Are you a man of means or are you not? Will you redeem it? How does he say no to that? Publicly puts him on the spot. And so he lays the bait out right in front of him. But then he leans in a little bit more. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, let me know. That I may, um, tell me that I may know. For there is one beside you to redeem it, and it's I. I come after you. If you won't do it, if you won't step up and be honorable, he, he brings the challenge up an option. If you won't be a man and take care of your duty, I will. Ooh. He slides the, the, the bait of the trap a little bit closer. Your move, buddy. And so, of course, what else are you going to say? I will redeem it, Mr. So-and-so says. He takes the bait, and the hook is set. But wait for it. There's more. So Boaz says, oh, by the way, if you're truly a redeemer, not so fast. I want to see if this is really about your duty and your concern for the family, or this is really just about profitability for you. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day... At the same time, these two go together, that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And there it is. Now he's caught. You're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. Boaz brought up the, the full obligation and made sure to emphasize Ruth the Moabite once he's already committed. This is brilliant. And then he gives him the final trump card. This is to perpetuate the name of the family. Because in that culture, legacy was everything. You're going to let our dead relative have no more sons? You're going to let his name perish from the land of Israel? So here's the reasoning. Elimelech has no sons. Ruth needs sons. She'll need a husband. Here you are, my friend. Put this together. Boaz gambles. He successfully paints him in a corner, and he, he wins. It's almost like Boaz knew this was going to happen. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Twice he says, I cannot I cannot. We're not sure exactly what he means by it might uh, impair his inheritance. But most likely, here's how this would work. If she has a son, her first son would be Elimelech's heir. 
he would inherit the land when he grows up. And if Peloni Almoni does not have another son, all of his inheritance goes to his, go to, um, his relative's name, not his own. Um, and all the time and all the uh, investment he would have in caring for Naomi, Ruth, and the land would be lost, and the, the name of his relative would get the uh, credit. So he says, take my right of redemption. But here's what we need to see about this man who is not to be named. In seeking his own inheritance, he forsook the inheritance of his he is not named, he dies and is forgotten because he cared more about his own name than the name of, of, of his brother and ultimately what would become the name of the Lord. So that's how it ends. And then um, in verse 7 and 8, there's this, this parenthetical note. Uh, just to kind of give you an idea, it's interesting that even by the time of the, the readers of Ruth, they weren't familiar with, with this, this custom. It has to be, so we think when we read this, oh, they're explaining this sandal thing for us. No, they're explaining it for the readers of Ruth. This is an ancient custom before the people who received this book. So here's the explanation. Now, this is a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and handed it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Uh, aren't you guys glad we graduated to handshakes? Um, that makes it official. Here's my shoe. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Like, I'm glad we moved on to handshakes because um, we live in Florida. I have seen some nasty sandals. Uh, and we have showers and we have Walmart. You could buy new ones. There, imagine how, imagine how, how dirty and grimy their feet are, how those dirty and those, those sandals are. Um, but real quick in this, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 25. Because this whole thing sounds kind of weird, but we've looked at Deuteronomy 25 a couple times so far. And if you don't know where Deuteronomy is, just go a couple books to your left. The big book right before Joshua. We've read this a couple times, um, but I want to put all this together. Because here's the uh, principle and the practice that Boaz is drawing on. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together, close family here, uh, though one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, kinsman, redeemer. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty, here's the duty, of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother. Remember? That's what uh, Mr. So-and-so is worried about here that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the, of the city shall call him and speak of him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then this brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Ouch. Okay, so let's, let's put this together real quick, though. When you take off your sandal and say, I'm agreeing to the exchange, I'm agreeing to be the, the, the redeemer, you're saying, I'm a man of honor. This is, 
my uh, pledge. But if a widow goes up to you and yanks your sandal off your feet and spits in your face, she's spitting in the face of your honor. She's saying, you are not a man of honor. You did not do what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to take your, your uh, sandal off. You were supposed to care for me. I'm going to show you how much of a worthless man you are. And so she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Here we are in Ruth, who, a man who would not care for the widow. His sandal is pulled off and his house is cut off and his name is not remembered. So Boaz steps in as the godly redeemer. All right, so that's the context of everything. Now let's go into our next section and um, into the, uh, the uh, payment, the exchange here. Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are my witnesses this day that I have bought. Um, we don't even know if money changed hands, but this is uh, certainly a uh, purchase. It's a responsibility. From the hand of, of Naomi, um, in those days, women couldn't really even own property, so it was probably entrusted to her, but it belonged to our brother Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion, his son, and Machlon, his other son. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to, or in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, among the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses. We had the uh, trial. The verdict is now verified. The, the sandal has been passed over. This is a contractual land sale. I have bought. This is a contractual marriage license. She will be my wife. And here's the uh, difference between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. Boaz is also a wealthy man. Boaz also does not have an inheritance of his own. He was not enamored with his worldly wealth. He used his worldly goods and his worldly station to purchase kingdom riches. And he didn't hesitate. Because these women were more important. It was more important that he cared for them than he cared for even his own name. And so in doing, here's how this points to Christ. From the very beginning, God has promised that he will make for himself a nation. And a nation consists of two things. Anyone remember uh, what he promised to Abraham in the first covenant? I will make you the father of many nations, offspring, seed. I will bring you into a land that you will possess. A nation, a kingdom, is always consists of a people and a place. When God is now redeeming a, a people, it's not a coincidence that Boaz redeems both a people and a place. Because full inheritance and full redemption always includes the people and the place for the people to live. This is just like Moses. When Moses, is, who is a redeemer of his people, brings them out of Egypt, the place they weren't supposed to be in. He brings the, the people with the whole goal of going to Canaan, the promised land. This is similar to our message in Isaiah 54, that we read earlier. He is treating a people who've been cast off 
barrenness. He's preparing a tent for them. He's preparing a place. He is redeeming them. This is also a message in a little book called Hosea, where God sends Hosea to redeem, to actually pay for a woman who is his wife, who prostitutes herself again and again. And the Lord uses this picture of this Redeemer, of a people and a place in Hosea. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 2. Now we're looking at all these because I want you to get this this, uh, theme. God does not leave his people without a Redeemer. He does not leave his people without a place. And often this is in terms of um, a woman. is often feminine language used. Because God, as we read earlier in Isaiah, he is the redeemer. The redeemer is the, 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 the husband. He's the one who will provide. Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will draw her in. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her, a, I will give her vineyards and make a valley of... Uh, Achor, which is trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He is drawing on a future redemption that looks back to the redemption that happened out of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. You will no longer worship false gods. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground. The land will be redeemed. The land will be cleansed from the the, uh, curse that was placed on it. And I will abolish the bow and the sword. There will be no more war. There will be no more death from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. There will be peace. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That is our God. Our God is the one who redeems the widow and the orphan. And Ruth is a perfect picture of this. A woman who has no place, no family name. She needs a redeemer. It points us to the greater redeemer. Because like Boaz, how much more with our redeemer? Our redeemer agrees to purchase not just one woman as a bride, but an entire people as a bride. From every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he doesn't pick the best of the best. He picks the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, the leftovers, the poor, the broken. So that he receives the glory. And even greater than the witnesses of the elders at the gate. His witnesses are the Father and the Spirit through all of eternity. I pledge to do this. And all the hosts of heaven say amen, amen. And our Redeemer, when He comes, He comes to give us a name that will never be cut off. Because it is His name. His name that will be proclaimed in the Israel of God forever. And He comes to give us an inheritance. 
But our inheritance is not here or at the gate of the city. Our inheritance is in the kingdom. He came from heaven to bring us back to heaven. He came from heaven to purchase a bride. A bride, believe it or not, uglier than Gomez. Gomer. Yes, definitely uglier than Gomez. Sometimes those Freudian slips just work well. But like Hosea, he draws in a people who are unlovely and unlovable. This was sealed not just with a sandal, but with his blood. The cost was his very life. He first went to the elders of the gate. He first went to the elders of Israel. He told them what he came for. The elders did not respect him. They did not welcome him. They hated him. They killed him. And they took him outside of the gate, outside of the city, to murder him. Yet, at his victorious resurrection, it was witnessed by hundreds. And it is being witnessed by millions throughout the ages. Every time we speak of our Savior in our resurrection, we speak of our Redeemer. He's passed out of the city, but reigns in the gates of heaven. Our Redeemer, he purchased a people like Boaz. But he also will redeem our land. Remember the promises from Hosea. Because the curse didn't just affect us. It affects the very ground we walk on. These two promises always eluded Abraham. Of a land and a seed. He toiled as a, as a sojourner on a land that was not his own. Let's look at Hebrews 11. I want you to see all of the uh, parallels here between Abraham and Sarah and what God is doing through Ruth and Boaz. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, like Ruth, that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Ruth didn't know where she was going to live and she went. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, he lived as a foreigner, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He couldn't describe the city, he couldn't paint it, but he knew it was coming. Those who put their faith in the living God, Ruth may not be able to articulate it, but she knew that there was a city. He knew that there is an inheritance and that God would build it. Build it. Just like Ruth, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. We'll see that next week. Even when she was past the age, since Ruth for 10 years did not have a child, since she was considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many of the stars of the heavens and innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. Look at all of these spiritual descendants that go through Abraham, that go through Boaz, that go through David, that go through Christ. But yet everyone before died in faith, verse 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Ruth left everything behind. She went out from that land and her homeland was with, was with the people of God. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Our God is redeeming a land for his people. Our God is preparing a recreated earth that has rivers and trees and fruit and birds. But it is full of righteousness and peace with no sin. It is a land of eternal blessing and perfect dwelling with our God. Our God promises that my people will have a place to reside. And I, their redeemer, will reside with them there. And I will provide for them forever. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter. If you're in Hebrews, you just go a couple pages to the right. 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This land, this land of righteousness that our Redeemer prepares, it is a land reserved for those like Ruth who leave everything behind and set themselves at the feet of their Redeemer. For those like Ruth who call on his mercy and who wait on his provision, who surrender their will to his. And in this, our Redeemer is so much greater than Boaz. His plan is eternal and it is unshakable. And so as we think about just this one story, think of all that he is doing, that the Lord is doing, while we sit home. Ruth has no idea what's going on in the gate. But our God is working out his perfect plan, even when we don't know. When we are afraid, when we are discouraged, when we are anxious, when we are uncertain, God is not. Just like Boaz, he is a man of confidence. Just like Boaz, he's masterfully working everything in this earth, everything that happens, he works for his glory and our good. Even if we don't see how he got there, we get to witness the result. We, here's, here's our, our problem. Let me just open up. And, uh, I will lead this, this meeting. Our problem is we think we're the main, story, the main character in the story. Our problem is we think everything should make sense to us and revolve around us. But Ruth reminds us that this is just one little family in one little town in one little nation in one little spot in history. But God works that and all other things to his glory. You know what both, both Boaz and Ruth were concerned with? They were not concerned with being the hero of the story. They were concerned with being faithful. I'm going to wake up today and be faithful. I'm going to wake up today and honor the Lord. And God used them in an incredible way. And it's the same for us. Our God will take care of the people. Our God will take care of the place. Our God will provide for us. Our job is to be faithful. Both of them kept his word. Both of them cared for those he cares for. It's that simple. The Lord provided for the rest. And so, 
now when we get to our final section, it shouldn't be so much of a prize, or surprise that this is a big celebration. There comes this uh, proclamation by everyone who, who, who witnesses it. Going back to Ruth, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. It's amazing that these people unknowingly end up proclaiming this inspired prophetic blessing on Boaz and his lineage. I, I, I want to I break this down. Um, there's a lot here. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. If you know your Bible history, who are Rachel and Leah? They're the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. May this Moab woman be like the mothers of the sons of Jacob? You mean our entire nation came from these two women? May she be like her? That's crazy talk. But little did they know that one who would come from her would build an entire nation, a spiritual house of Israel through 12 apostles, and who would have a lineage that is greater than all of the lineage of Rachel and Leah combined just through one house. Also, he goes on, uh, the uh, people go on to say here, may you act worthily in Ephrata, Ephrata, and be uh, renowned in Bethlehem. So the word for worthy here, the word that's come up several times, Kyle, may you act excellently. Boaz, you're an excellent man. You're a worthy man. You're a notable man. Ruth is a worthy, excellent woman. May you both act worthily in Ephrata and in Bethlehem. So here's the, the difference between the two. There's a lot of carryover. So Ephrata is the, uh, the uh, region um, and the name of the, the particular clan within Judah. This is um, Elimelech's uh, family, kind of family name. Um, but it's also the, where they resided is in Bethlehem. So basically, will you be a man of honor among your, your, your people in the place and in your particular city? This is a familial um, and a, a civil blessing. And it also speaks prophetically. Because this little formula, Bethlehem of Ephrata, comes up in Micah chapter 5. Let's look at that on the screen. Micah chapter 5, another one of the minor prophets. This is, particular, uh, this is particularly important for this time of year. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're so small and insignificant, you don't even deserve to be part of the kingly line. From you, who are too little, shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor gives birth. Ooh. I'm going to give you up for a time. It's going to seem like you're forgotten. But there's going to be a woman who comes. And she's going to give birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All, all of the other 11 tribes. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. O little town of Bethlehem. 
This is important in just a moment. We're not done. But next it comes up. May you be like the house of, house of Perez. Oh, man. Um, so Boaz has a direct line to Judah through Perez. And I'm going to save you all the uh, gory details. So if you're not familiar with uh, Genesis 38, read it on your own time. Um, if you read it with your kids, you'll have a lot of explaining to do. Um, but basically, this is another instance of leveret marriage. So a, a, a leveret marriage is when a, a brother dies and then uh, another brother uh, should take his, his brother's wife to continue the family name. Judah takes things upon himself, marries a, a Canaanite woman, has a son through him. He is a wicked man. He dies, leaves a widow. His brother doesn't want to continue the uh, family name, uh, says he will, but he doesn't in a very scandalous way. Um, leaves her in shame. Her name is uh, Tamar. Tamar decides to take things in her own hands, kind of like Naomi, but way worse. Naomi does not do it in a scandalous and immoral way, but Tamar does. She thinks it's a good idea to seduce and sleep with her father-in-law so that she can continue a line. He thinks she's a prostitute. Um, he gives her a piece of uh, down, down, down payment for the exchange. He finds out she's pregnant. He wants to kill her. She says, uh, does this belong to someone you know? Oh, that's mine. She's more honorable than I am. And um, le le let her live. I'm put to shame here. And that child is named Perez. Yeah. But what's interesting here is that in a situation that is so immoral, so ungodly, now in the same line, a similar situation. But in this one, Boaz and Ruth act so honorably, so much better than Judah. So much better than uh, Tamar. And, but yet both of these women show up in Matthew's genealogy. Both of these women are recognized as playing a role in the coming of the Redeemer. Why? To show that it is not conventional wisdom or our faithfulness that brings about the Redeemer. It is God's faithfulness. Because if you look in Jesus' genealogy, much like our genealogy, it is a genealogy of scoundrels and scallywags and scrumpets and everything else you can think of. But there is one thing that is remaining, and I've left this for the end. May she be like all these things because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young man. All of this other craziness is worth it because there's an offspring that's, that's coming. Anyone want to guess uh, if uh, offspring here is in the singular or, or the plural? It's in the singular. All for the offspring, one, that the Lord will give. The most important blessing will be given by the Lord. There will be an offspring to perpetuate the name. There will be an offspring to redeem everything that, that, that came before. And our redemption comes from Ruth's redemption. The original readers of Ruth, they can't see this, but we looking forward, wait, there's an offspring? You mean there's a child that will come? From this very line, there'll be a promised offspring. There will be a child born. There will be a child born in Bethlehem this very time. There will be a child born of a virgin. There will be a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. This child, this offspring is unlike any other because his offspring is God in the flesh. 
this offspring is the hope, not just the clan of Elimelech, not just the house of Judah, not just of the people of Israel, but of the nations. This great gift will come through Boaz's selfless act. But this child, some people may forget, but this child does not remain a child. This child grows up. He grows up to redeem a people from their sins. He grows up to be the purchaser of the people and the place that we talked about earlier. He grows up to be the true redeemer of all who believe in him and all who call upon the Lord. And so when we read this, we remember our hope is not in our faithfulness. It is not on whether we make the right decisions or not. Do I go up to the field at midnight and night or not? Don't. Um, but our hope is in the plans of God. Because even when we can't see what, what, what's going on, this is so small and so significant. There is a promise even there. An offspring is coming. Isn't our God amazing? Our hope is not in our plans or even our understanding. Our hope is in our Redeemer. Our hope is in the child who came as Emmanuel, God with us. This little book provides so much hope and promise. So I just want you to think about this. Meditate on these words as we approach the Lord's table. This book reminds us that even when it feels like nothing is happening, even when it feels like this is confusing, God is never going to answer my, my, my prayers, things are never going to work out, God is always working. Brothers and sisters, we know how often we must wait on the Lord. We know how often, like Ruth, we've probably wondered, will he really provide? Will he leave me alone? Will he ever come back for me? Will he ever answer me? We've all been there. This is why we live by faith and not by sight. Naomi was confident that Boaz will not rest, that he would settle the matter. How much more confident are we in our God who does not rest, who never sleeps, who never slumbers? How much more confident should we be in a God who always keeps his promises? It may seem like it takes too long. But his timing is always perfect, especially when we already know our Redeemer, especially when we know the price has already been paid, especially when we know we have been sealed and protected in him. Brothers and sisters, this is a small glimpse of how loving and kind our Redeemer is to us and what we look forward to in being united to him. And if you are not in him, you need a Redeemer. Because if you're waiting home, thinking that your good thoughts and your good deeds are going to come back and save you, you're going to be very lonely. They can't. You can't stand on your own. You are not Boaz. You are Ruth. And if you don't cry out to him, you will be Mr. So-and-so. You will be Poloni Almoni. No one will ever remember you. You will be destroyed. There is only one name that will carry on into eternity, and it's not yours. It is the name of Christ, and if you bear his name, brothers and sisters, know that God loves you. And everything he is doing now is to prepare an eternal home for us, the redeemed. And the next time we see him, 
he will welcome us into the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We need you. We thank you that you are not only just our maker, but our husband. That through Christ, our redeemer, we are your sons. We have a name. We have an inheritance. We have a place to call our own, and praise God, it is not this place. Lord, we look forward to that place. The time where we will be in your presence. A land flowing with milk and honey and peace and righteousness. Without war, without hunger, without pain, without death. But Lord, we wait in anticipation. Because we know you are still drawing that people. We pray for our lost brothers and sisters. The sheep who have not yet been drawn back into the fold. Lord, would, we, would you use us to be ministers of this reconciliation, to have the name of our Redeemer and this redemption on our lips, that the world would know the good news that we know. I know that my Redeemer lives. He is not just a child, but he is a reigning king. He is our hope. He is our redemption. He is our life everlasting, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.